I'm sure Jason feels much better, and so do I. Well, I want to invite you to open your Bibles this morning to the book of Hosea. The book of Hosea. If you are a guest with us and need a Bible, feel free to use one of the pew Bibles in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, feel free to take that Bible home with you today as a special gift from your friends at Christ Fellowship. If you do use one of those pew Bibles and need a little bit of help with finding the book of Hosea, you can find that on page 752. If you're not using a pew Bible, open your Bible to the middle, start with the Psalms, and move toward the minor prophets until you get to Ezekiel, Daniel, and then finally you will bump into the minor prophet of Hosea. Hosea chapter 4, would you stand with me for the reading of God's word, beginning of verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel, for the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, committing adultery. They break all bounds and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Therefore, the land mourns and all who dwell in it languish. And also the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and even the fish of the sea are taken away. Yet... Let no one contend and let none accuse, for with you is my contention, O priest. You shall stumble by day, the prophet shall also stumble with you by night, and I will destroy your mother. My people are are destroyed for lack of knowledge, because you have rejected knowledge. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Now, this morning, Hosea chapter 4, verse 1 in particular, will serve as a sort of launching point in our study as we continue our series together, God of Wonders, a study where we unfold and unpack the attributes of God. In this passage, in Hosea chapter 4, verse 1, we see God indicting his people for failing in three very important areas. The areas of truth, mercy, what may uh, be in your Bible if you're reading in the, new, uh, in the English Standard Version, steadfast love. And finally, for failing in this area, we will refer to as the knowledge of God. I want you to think by way of introduction this morning, think for a moment about a scenario where, where truth has vanished from the culture. Think about living in a country where truth has vanished from the culture. You know, in the 1950s, in the 1960s, Dr. Francis Schaeffer said that Americans have a new way of looking at truth. It was, uh, even though Dr. Schaeffer never referred to this as a prophecy, it was not a prophecy, But in many ways, those words have come true, that things have only grown darker and darker in the land. But not only think about a a country where truth has vanished from the culture, I want you to imagine living in a land where mercy is non-existent. There is simply no mercy in the culture. It has perished altogether. Then I want you to think about living in a country where the knowledge of God is completely gone. 
As you think about truth vanishing, mercy vanishing, and the knowledge of God vanishing, that is exactly what is happening in this verse in the nation Israel. And God indicts them for it. I don't think it would come as any surprise to you if I told you that the same thing is happening in America right now, right before our very eyes. For instance, the notion of absolute truth is fading fast, as we have seen in previous studies together. It was in 1987 that Alan Bloom wrote a very important book entitled The Closing of the American Mind. And here is what Dr. Bloom said almost 30 years ago. He said, quote, there is one thing a professor can be absolutely certain of. Almost every student entering the university believes or says he believes that truth is relative. Now, I hope those words come as a bit of a shock to you because he uttered those words almost 30 years ago. We were in a world of hurt as a nation almost 30 years ago, and it has only gotten worse over the last several years. We have also seen how the knowledge of God is eroding, especially in this study, as we have seen that the knowledge of God is not only eroding in, in our culture and on the cultural landscape, but the knowledge of God is eroding in local churches. You see, Israel became a wasteland where the knowledge of God had simply vanished. If you look at verse 6, Hosea 4 verse 6 says, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge because you have rejected knowledge. You might put it this way. My people are destroyed for lack of theology because you have rejected theology. That's exactly what God is trying to communicate to his people Israel. And Hosea 4 verse 1 also addresses a lack of mercy in Israel. R.C. Sproul says it like this, The lack of faithfulness, Hosea mentions here, is the absence of the fidelity or the loyalty of chesed. Do you remember the word chesed? The Hebrew word H-E-S-E-D. That loyal love, that steadfast love, that mercy that comes from God. Dr. Sproul continues. He says the Old Testament concept of apostasy, the Old Testament concept of apostasy was linked. And if you've ever struggled with trying to figure out what apostasy is, remember this word and you will link it for the rest of your life. Because I found that many people really struggle and wrestle with what, what does true apostasy look like? I hope when you hear the word apostasy, it frightens you. I hope that you will say to yourself from time to time, God, please prevent me from becoming an apostate. Sproul says the Old Testament concept of apostasy was linked to this word, forgetting. Forgetting. He says to forsake God is to forget God and the benefits he has given his people. And that's exactly what was happen, happening in Old Testament Israel, you see. And that's exactly what's happening in our nation in the United States of America. People are forgetting God. 
They are turning their backs on God. They are neglecting, they're forgetting the benefits that God has promised his people. This morning, I want to impress upon you the importance of God's mercy. May we see the mercy of God. May we savor the mercy of God. May we embrace the mercy of God. And may we walk away from Christ fellowship today and never forget as long as we should live about the importance of the mercy of God. This morning, look with me at three elements of that mercy I want to, first of all, provide you with a definition of mercy. And we'll look at several definitions. And then I want to move on to give some very important descriptions of mercy. Not only look at a definition, but I want to ask, what does the mercy of God look like in our daily lives? And then finally, I want to note several characteristics of people who have received mercy. First of all, the definition of mercy. Millard Erickson says it like this. He says, God's mercy is his tender-hearted, loving compassion for his people. Now, when you, when you gaze upon this definition of the mercy of God, if you are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, automatically, instantly, you should be drawn to this definition. Why? Because we recognize that each of us are sinners by nature and choice. We recognize and freely admit that apart from God's grace, we deserve to go to hell. And let me say, as a matter of introduction, if you don't believe you deserve to go to hell, what we describe today about the mercy of God will make absolutely no sense to you at all. You will reject it. You will shun it. You will flee from it. You will argue with it. You will contend with it. We must begin with the presupposition of, I deserve the wrath of God. If you embrace that, if you, along with every other human being that is born into this world, embrace the biblical notion that you are under judgment, then this definition should automatically means something to you. It should resonate with you because God offers mercy. That is his tender-hearted, loving compassion for his people. Millard Erickson continues. He says this, If grace contemplates man as sinful, guilty, and condemned, and you remember a few weeks ago, we did the study on grace where grace automatically assumes that that humanity is filled with sin that they are they labor under this uh, a guilty conscience they they need to be saved from the penalty of sin and the power of sin and so if grace contemplates man as sinful guilty and condemned mercy on the other hand sees him as miserable and needy Now, there's something you you probably don't want your children to to learn in school. Children, boys and girls, I want you to know today that you are miserable and needy. Or maybe you do want your children to be taught that. I know I do. My children are miserable and needy. And so are yours. And do you know where they got that from? They got it from mom and dad. We, as a people, are, apart from grace, we are a people who are miserable and needy. A.W. Tozer describes mercy this way. 
He says that mercy is an attribute of God, an infinite and inexhaustible energy within the divine nature, which disposes God to be actively compassionate. Once again, if you perceive yourself to be miserable and needy, you will automatically be drawn to this definition where God says, I see the condition that you are in. I see that you are a a miserable, needy sinner. I offer you the sovereign God of the universe. I offer to you mercy. And one of the ways that the people of God have abandoned the knowledge of God, just like Israel did in Hosea chapter 4, verse 1, one of the ways that we as God's people tend to abandon the knowledge of God in this generation is to conceive of God in these terms. And I think I can say that 100% of us, children included, have heard of this conception of God. In the Old Testament, God is a God of... Wrath. In the Old Testament, God is a God of justice. God is a God of vengeance. In the New Testament, God is a God of love. And what we need to do if we are to proceed and make any headway in the Christian life and our understanding of God is we must banish those categories. A.W. Tozer says it like this, We must banish from our minds forever the common erroneous notion that justice and judgment characterize the God of Israel while mercy and grace belong to the Lord of the church. So think about the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the word that I have already introduced for you, that Hebrew word chesed, H-E-S-E-D, That word is used nearly 250 times in the Old Testament. It is translated primarily with the English word mercy. The word mercy, but is also translated as kindness, goodness, or if you're reading from the ESV, as steadfast love. If you like to write in your Bible, I would write above steadfast love in in, uh, Hosea 4 verse 1, mercy. Because that's exactly what Hosea is referring to, the mercy of God. The steady, persistent refusal of God to wash his hands of wayward Israel is the essential meaning of the Hebrew word, which is also translated as loving kindness. The Revised Standard renders it often by the words loyalty, to deal loyally, or chiefly by the words steadfast love. And so as you as you walk through the Old Testament, again, the word occurs at least 250 times, but let me give you a few instances of the word. In Exodus 34, 6, we looked at this two weeks ago, we read these words, the Lord passed before him, that is Moses, and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful, and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. King David in Psalm chapter 51 verse 1 uses the word as follows, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Or in Psalm 103, verses 1 to 4, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget 
Remember that word? Forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. Someone gave me a tape. Do you remember what that is? A tape? The young people are like, a tape? Like masking tape? No, that thing that you put in the tape player. Like tape player? What's a tape player? I'll talk to the rest of you. Remember the tape player? You put the tape in and someone gave me a tape of a pastor who lost his voice. And not to the point where he couldn't talk at all, but it was just barely like this. Now, can you imagine if that happened to me? Some of you would be like, sweet. <laughs> if, if I couldn't talk, I couldn't preach, which would mean I'd have to find a different job. And so this pastor went to look for employment elsewhere. Well, one day he decided to come and address the congregation, if you can believe it. And I, I have it on tape and I have since lost it because I think I lost my tape player. But he is preaching and basically going like this. He's talking to the people of God. And he cited this verse that the Lord heals all your diseases and redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with. And his voice returned while he was reading this verse for months. He had lost his voice. And now he reads heals all your diseases who can you imagine what happened with the people of God? Can you imagine what happened with that man and his, his wife and his children as they saw their loved one healed instantly? God showered his mercy on this particular pastor. In Psalm 103, verse 8, we read, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Now turn your attention for a moment to the New Testament. In the New Testament... There is a Greek word that is translated as compassion. What does it mean for God to show mercy on his people? It means he shows them compassion. Compassion which is offered to an offender. It means to help a person who is afflicted. It means to, to bring help to someone who is in a wretched condition. And the notion of mercy suggests once again, as, as I have labored to explain this morning, that a person is in desperate need. And so the New Testament highlights and showcases the need of people all throughout the New Testament, especially in the Gospels. In Matthew nine twenty seven, Jesus passed on from there and two blind men followed him crying aloud, have mercy on us, son of David. In Matthew chapter 15, verse 22 a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. In Matthew seventeen fifteen, we read, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic, and he suffers terribly, for often he falls into the fire and often into the water. First Timothy 1.16, Paul the Apostle says, But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. And so, if admitting your desperate condition, 
If admitting your need is at the heart of what it, what it means to truly receive mercy, the question of application before us this morning is a very obvious one. The question is, what is your need? On the day after Christmas, exactly what is your need? Where is it specifically in your life where, where you, as you sit in the pew today, need to receive the mercy of God. Perhaps it's a, a need for physical mercy. I know several of you have been walking through a season of physical pain and you're like these, these men and women in the days of the New Testament where you cry out, Lord, have mercy. Perhaps you have a need for emotional mercy. Something is not right in your mind, in your head. You're struggling, whether it's anxiety or depression or loneliness or a host of other things. You cry out for emotional mercy. Perhaps you have a need like many Americans do these days. As the average American, last time I checked, he, he or she has a debt load of over $10,000. Translation is you get your Visa bill, you get your MasterCard bill, you get your American Express bill, and the sum total of all those bills is over $10,000. And as you well know, you simply can't, you can't keep up with the interest by paying a small amount of the principal. And so you cry out for financial mercy. Perhaps you're here and you say, I, I just need simple spiritual mercy. I need spiritual mercy. And one thing we all know is that each of us have this in, this in common. Each of us need to receive the mercy of Almighty God. Now, I want to intensify our approach to this study this morning by moving from the definition of mercy to, to the description of God's mercy. I want to give you several areas where we see the mercy of God in Scripture, and I pray that it challenges you and encourages you as well. At a very basic level, number one, I want you to see that God's mercy is abundant. You see, God is not a God who is stingy with his mercy. He is a God of abundant mercy. Psalm 69, 16 says, Answer me, O Lord, for your steadfast love is good. According to your abundant mercy, turn to me. And so remember that God loves to shower his mercy on his people. Secondly, we read in Luke chapter 1 verse 78 that God's mercy is tender. God's mercy is tender. Number three, I want you to see that God has determined, and this is where it, it may begin to rattle some of you when we look at this reality, but God determined in eternity past who, exactly who, would be the recipients of his mercy. The word of God says repeatedly that God determined in eternity past exactly who would be the recipients of his mercy. And I can, like a, a good defense attorney already anticipate what some of the objections might be. What about my son? What about my daughter? What about my mom? What about my dad, my grandfather, my grandma, my loved one? What about these moral people? Why would God not choose to give mercy to that person? And the automatic thing that tends to come from that person's lips is this. God, if you don't give mercy to my loved one, that's not, help me, fair. 
That's not fair. And so if you're here this morning, and I know that there will be several of you who will wrestle with this, hear it from the heart of your shepherd. This is something that I have wrestled through. This is something that many of us have wrestled through. And I would just uh, plead with you to be patient, to search the scriptures and ask God to reveal this truth to you. One very important place where this emerges in the New Testament is in the book of 2 Timothy. If, if you would turn there with me, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9. Have you ever had an occasion where you read the Word of God, where you read a section from Scripture, and you said to yourself, I'm going to ask for a raise of hands on this one in a moment. Have you ever said to yourself, I have read that scripture a hundred times and I never saw that. How many of you have had that happen to you? Isn't that something? My prayer is that that would happen to someone today. Second Timothy one verse nine, because it happened to me many years ago. Let's start in verse eight and look at the context. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of uh, me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us. And called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. When does God give mercy? He ordains in eternity past before the ages began. Who exactly it will be who will receive mercy? You ask, why does God choose some and pass over the rest? And by the way, that's exactly what the scriptures teach, that God gives mercy to some and he passes over the rest of humanity. The answer to this question is, I have no idea. Why is it that God chooses to give mercy to to Jacob, but not Esau? Jacob, have I loved Esau? Have I hated? One answer I do know is this is that everything God does, if you return with me to the book of Ephesians chapter 1, everything that God does is for the promotion of His sovereign grace. And so we get a little glimpse, a little window into the the motivations and the purpose of God in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 5 and 6, where Paul says that He, that is God the Father, predestined us, for adoption as sons through his son, through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Why? To the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. And so never forget as we study the mercy of God, that God determined in eternity past exactly who it would be, who he would shower his mercy upon. Number four, building on this great reality. I want you to see that God is never obligated to show mercy. That is a tough, tough truth. That God is never obligated to show mercy. By definition, you see, mercy is undeserved. And so whenever we come to the table and we say to God, God, you owe it to me. God, you owe it to my loved one to give them mercy that should automatically cause you to stop dead in your tracks because by definition, mercy is not obligatory. You see, the moment we say that mercy is obligatory, it ceases to be mercy. Whenever we say, God, you owe it to me, now it's not mercy any longer. Look with me at Romans chapter 9. Come to Romans 9. 
And look with me at verse 15. Romans chapter 9, verse 15. Paul the Apostle, as he, as he wields the mighty sword of sovereign grace, and all throughout the book of Romans, he anticipates some of these very valid objections that the people in the first century had and the people of our culture continue to have. Notice what he says in verse 15. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. Once again, I understand that these are very, very difficult and weighty doctrinal matters. One of the reasons that I I made a bit of an executive decision to stop in the middle of the Gospel of John is I realize as we move forward in the Gospel of John, especially when we get to chapter 17, there is some weighty, weighty theological reality that we will be forced to deal with and reckon in our minds and in our hearts. And I said to myself, stop. We need to do a study on the attributes of God. And I pray that this study will will prepare us, that it will serve us well as we move forward in the days ahead as we continue our study and conclude our study in the Gospel of John. Now, this is a subject that concerned me a great deal in my ministry days, in my early ministry days. In fact, it concerned me even more in my days at Multnomah University. I can tell you stories where I argued until I was purple in the face. I'm colorblind, and even I knew my face was purple. I would argue with my buddies, who I am still dear friends with to this day, because I was railing against the notion of sovereign grace. I was railing against the notion that God is never obligated to show mercy. But my concerns slowly went away. My concerns evaporated as I eventually consented and gave in and submitted to the truth of Scripture. John MacArthur says it like this. He says, in his perfect wisdom... And in perfect righteousness and justice, God has destined some people for salvation by his grace. And because of their sin and unbelief, he has left others to damnation by his wrath. As believers, we know that in ourselves, we deserve, we deserve only God's rejection and condemnation. But we also know that for his own sovereign reasons, God has elected us to be his children and in his own time and his way brought us into a saving faith and relationship with his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Close quote. I want you to see number five. And this is one that will need some careful thought, but I I pray it will bless you as it has blessed me. Number five, I want you to see that mercy is not justice. Mercy is not justice. And my suspicion is that many of you would say, well, of course, mercy is not justice. They're totally different concepts. But my fear is that many Christians equate them in some way. So remember, mercy is not justice. I read a book uh, probably 25 years ago. 
It was a book that I read that really helped me wrestle through some of these things. This is the stuff that made my face turn purple, you see. And I want to commend that book to you. It's a book, I believe it is still in print. I know you can get a hold of it. It's a book by R.C. Sproul, and the title is Chosen by God. Here are a few things that Dr. Sproul says. He says, let's assume that all people are guilty in the sight of God. Is that something we can just all agree on? All people... The assumption is, are guilty in the sight of God. And he says, from the mass of guilty humanity, God sovereignly decides to give mercy to some of them. What do the rest get? The rest get justice. The saved get mercy and the unsaved get justice. And here here are the words that exploded everything I had ever thought about God as a young man. Some get mercy, some get justice, no one gets injustice. No one gets injustice. For me, what that did is that obliterated all of my arguments, all of my, but that's not fair arguments. So remember, some get mercy, some get justice. Jacob got mercy. Esau got justice. No one got injustice. No one got injustice. R.C. continues. He says, as a human being, I might prefer that God give his mercy to everyone equally, but I may not demand it. I hope you see why this book was so helpful to me. Because these are all, it was as if he wrote this book for me. So if you feel like, oh man, he is, he is just, he's just nailing me right between the eyes. Know that it hit me first. It really did. I may not demand it. He says, if God is not pleased to dispense his saving mercy to all men, then I must submit to his holy and righteous decision. God is never, never, never obligated to be merciful to sinners. That is the point we must stress if we are to grasp the full measure of God's grace. And it was with those few words that all of my objections instantly evaporated. Number six, I want you to see that God's mercy is great. Second Samuel 24 verse 14, David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercy is great. God's mercy is great. 1 Peter 1.3, as Peter begins this great, great letter, he says, Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his what? Great mercy. He has caused us to be born again. He has caused us to be regenerated to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Number seven. And finally, I want you to see that God's mercy endures forever. His mercy endures forever. How many of you have ever, and this is where Jason just, Jason just, Put your hands over your ears for a minute. And some of you are like, why do we have to keep repeating those words over and over and over? His love endures forever. Which, man, Chris Tomlin, what is your deal? Just say, Mike, you know what I'm talking about. His love endures, right? Why do those writers do that? Because you see it in the scripture. His love endures forever. When 
all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord is on the temple, they bowed down and their faces to the ground on the pavement and they worshiped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, For he is good, his steadfast love endures forever. Psalm 100, verse 5, For the Lord is good, his steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. Psalm 106, Praise the Lord, O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. And so the next time you say to yourself, why do we have to keep singing these words over and over and over again? It's because the scripture does it. The scripture does it. Finally, by way of application, I want you to see some characteristics or some traits of people who have received mercy. And they put that mercy into action. Number one. This person realizes that there is a time when they did not have it. Have you ever thought about that? There was a time when I did not have mercy. I can tell you that when God got a hold of me on July 4th, 1974, two seconds before I trusted Christ, I was without, someone help me. I was without mercy. I had not received the mercy of God. And so the person who has experienced the mercy of God makes this realization. I can can tell you right now there was a day when I did not have it. Number two, secondly, they recognize they do not deserve it. They recognize they don't deserve the mercy of God. And I'm convinced that once you will admit those two great realities, that there was a day when I didn't have it, And I can tell you right here and now, I don't deserve it. Then you can move on to number three. Is you respond to God's commandments. Micah 6, 8 says, He has told you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. And then finally, The person who has received mercy reflects the mercy of God to other people. They reflect the mercy of God to other people. 1 John 3.17 says, If anyone has the world's good and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Do something just for a second. And those of you in the front row, feel free to look behind you for a minute. You won't get in trouble. Look, in fact, would you all just do that? Look, look back behind you. Notice there are people and now they're gazing at you. Look around Christ Fellowship. And what you see are people who have received mercy, who now offer mercy. How many of you have seen that happen at Christ Fellowship? You receive mercy from someone else. You not only receive it vertically from God. This is like the clapping thing with Jason. Not one of you have received mercy? Oh, man. Raise your hand if you've received mercy. Okay, good. I just have to ask it a different way. So you receive it vertically from God, and then you receive it horizontally from others. I look down and see April Miller. I don't Where'd Sam go, April? Oh, he's ushering. So Sam in the back and April Miller as they chair our outreach ministry action team. Here's a couple who is committed to sharing the mercy of God with people who need to receive it the most. Would you pray for Sam and April and for the Christiansons as they move forward in the days ahead? As they try to, in very practical ways, demonstrate the mercy of God to not only people in our church fellowship, 
but to people in this community that we're a part of. Here is the bottom line. The bottom line is that, as Charles Hodge has wisely said, God never condemns the innocent, nor clears the guilty, neither does he ever punish with undue severity. Another way of saying that is this. Some get mercy, some get justice. There is not one person in all of human history who has received injustice. There is not one angel in all of redemptive history who has ever received injustice. God has shown his mercy in a multitude of ways throughout redemptive history. As you read through the Bible this year, would you ask God to show you where is it that mercy emerges in this passage? But as you read the stories, the, 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 the marvelous stories of the mercy of God, and as you marvel about those stories, remember this, the place where God's mercy shines the absolute brightest is on the cross. That's where the mercy of God shines the brightest. It was several weeks ago, about a month ago, I, I, uh, I wrote a book review. And for some reason in this book review, I made reference to my grandfather, V.W. Steele, who pastored at Bethel Baptist in Everett, just south of us. And Grandpa, in the 1940s, stepped away from his pulpit at the height of a revival. You know, usually pastors leave the church when things get rough, right? It's like, man... I've had it. I'm out of here. My grandfather had a chance to be a part of this great revival at Bethel Baptist. And as my dad has shared the story with me several times, basically he went home from the church one day and walked in the front door and said to my grandma, said, uh, I need to resign. Well, what are we going to do? I have no, they had no idea. He didn't know what job he was going to receive. And so they packed up the, the kids in the car and they drove to Los Angeles. And so as I made reference to my, my grandfather in this book review and put it online, I posted it online. A few days later, about a week later, I received a very strange email from a guy I'd never heard of named, named Wes Johnson. Wes Johnson doesn't mean anything to you, nor did it mean anything to me until I read his title, Senior Pastor of Bethel Baptist Church in Everett, Washington. And here is the short note he sent me. Dear David, my good friend forwarded me your review of Owen Strawn's recent book, Awakening the Evangelical Mind. And I was astonished when I read your opening paragraph about your grandfather, Reverend Vernon Steele. When I became the pastor of Bethel Baptist Church in 1993, your grandfather was still highly thought of by the then young adults he had mentored back in the 30s and the 40s. They're not so young anymore. They had remained steadfast and faithful, seeing the church through many changes of the 1960s and 70s. Several of their peers had gone out into world missions, and they raised a generation who also went out, supported by the Bethel family, and have since returned, bringing life and vitality to this classic congregation. The revival your grandfather served here at Bethel has blessed us for generations. Studying the history of Bethel Church has given renewed vision and passion to carry it out. Sincere and with thanks, Dr. Wes Johnson, pastor of Bethel Baptist Church. Say, where is this going, pastor? Well, I respond to Pastor Johnson. I said, Pastor Wes, 
Many thanks for your gracious email recounting some of the people my grandfather influenced over the years. It was deeply moving to read the stories you shared. I appreciate it very much. Last spring, my 13-year-old son, Nathan, he and I decided to track down Bethel Baptist Church. We'd never been there before. And for the first time, we had a chance to see the church where my grandfather served so faithfully. We stopped by on a Saturday afternoon and were greeted by a few gentlemen. I need to tell you that uh, I said to Nathan, Nathan, let's, let's go see if we can uh, get in the church. He's like, no, Dad, like it's all closed up. Like, what are you doing? I was like, come on, it'll be fun. And, and we, we walk up and we're kind of looking in the mirror, you know, a couple of stalkers looking in the church. And lo and behold, there, there came a couple gentlemen. So I pick it up. In this note to Pastor Johnson, a few gentlemen greeted us and they were gracious enough to give us a tour of the church. Grandpa went to be with the Lord before my son was born, as I say to Pastor Johnson. So it was quite an experience to show Nathan the photograph of his great grandfather hanging on the wall with all the other pastors over the years at Bethel Baptist. Grandpa was always interested to know about my experiences in ministry. I could always count on him to ask a question somewhere along the way in the conversation. He would always pose this question. Are you telling them about the cross? Are you telling them about the cross? Do the young people know about the cross? I'll never forget the look on his face. He was dead serious and intent on driving that point home. It made a huge difference on my life and continues even to this day. And so when you hear about the mercy of God, even when you hear some of the the more controversial things about the mercy of God, my prayer today, my friends, is that it would drive you to the cross. Because at the cross, that's where you will be comforted and you will be forgiven of all your sin. At the cross, you learn that sin has made a breach between you and a holy God. At the cross, you will learn that you have absolutely nothing to offer. You know, some of the men and I were at a a retreat several months ago, and we were essentially forced to sing a song that said we offer a bunch of things to God. Well, guess what? At the cross, I can put it this way. I got nothing. I have absolutely nothing to offer God. At the cross, you learn that you not only have nothing to give, but you have everything to gain. At the cross, you learn that that God is God and you are not. At the cross, you learn about a God who sent his one and only son to die on that cross to be your sin bearer. At the cross, you learn that Jesus took the hit that Jesus bore the almighty wrath of God so that you and I wouldn't have to. At the cross, you learn about the mercy of God. At the cross, you receive the mercy of God. If my grandfather were with us today, I'd be able to say, Hey, Grandpa, I told him about the cross. And he'd smile. The most important thing, that your pastor can do for you. The most important thing I can do for you today is to tell you about the cross of Christ. Have you received his mercy? Are you rejoicing in that mercy? And do you share that mercy with others? Do you tell people about the unbelievable mercy that flows freely from the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ? 
We're going to sing more about that cross and the Savior who died on the cross and whom God raised from the dead three days later. And we're going to celebrate the cross as we remember the life of Jesus and the death, burial, and the resurrection of our Savior. We join me in prayer. Father, we don't understand how all these things uh, work their way through redemptive history. We don't have all the answers, but we, we do know some of what took place. And we're so thankful to acknowledge that you gave mercy to some. We thank you so much that that mercy flows freely from Calvary's cross and is available to anyone who will bank all their hope exclusively on the Lord Jesus Christ that is available for anyone who will turn from their sin and turn to the Savior. And so I pray if there's someone here today who has never come to the foot of the cross and asked to be forgiven, that today would be the day of salvation. There are many here today, God, who have been walking with Jesus for several years, five years, 10 years, 20, 30, 40 years. For those people, God, I pray that they would be refreshed by the message of the cross and refreshed by learning more about your mercy. Thank you for giving us mercy. We did not deserve it. We do not deserve it. Help us to rejoice in it. Help us to respond uh, appropriately by thanking you for it and by extending that mercy to people here in our church family and to people in our community, all for the glory of God. In Jesus' name, amen. It has been said that the number one fear in America is public speaking. That's a fact. Number two, I don't know what number two is, but it should be sharing the gospel. Sharing the gospel. Let me encourage you. When you share the gospel, just tell people about the cross. It's pretty simple. Tell them about the cross and tell them about the mercy of God that is available for anyone who believes. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these great uh, realities. Uh, Thank you that we can come to you. Uh, a God who is rich and abundant in mercy. God, thank you for expressing that mercy chiefly through the the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, your son, who lived uh, the life we could never live and died a death that we all deserve to die. Thank you, Jesus, for bearing the wrath of God for the people of God. Thank you for forgiving us of our sins. Thank you for freeing us from the power of sin and the penalty of sin. And one day we are excited to know that we'll be saved from sin's very presence. And now may your grace, mercy, and peace be with us from this day forward, both now and forevermore. Amen. Two quick things. We'll have.